Broadcasting from the News Radio 102.9 KARN Radio Center and Studio 1B, it is Guatney Unplugged with Scott Romine. So excited for our show today. We are talking with a famous art director and production designer, worked on a lot of my favorite movies, Mr. Joe Owls. How are you, Joe? I'm just great. Great. I sure appreciate you taking time to to talk with us. I I wanted to ask you, the things that you made influenced me so much as a kid. What were the movies and TV shows that influenced you as a kid? Okay. In the beginning, this is interesting because I'm having a friend of mine who wrote the Jaws book and the Closer Counters book is writing a, uh, a biography. And uh, he starts, what happened when I was like maybe 14, 15 years old, I could always draw. So I was always interested in it, and I played piano. <laughs> but I went down with a, uh, a neighbor, girl, friend, and uh, we went to see American in Paris. And uh, Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron, and I was just really blown away by it. And then I found out. It wasn't made in Paris at all. It was all made in the back lot of MGM and on the sound stages of MGM. And I thought, my gosh, who did that? And then I found out it was, uh, art directors did that. That was their job, to make uh, you know MGM look like Paris. So that's what, when I pursued, I wanted to pursue designing movies. And um, then I went about uh, taking whatever curriculum I needed to prepare me for that. Well, when you were a kid, how important were like art lessons or art teachers? Well, I could always draw. Uh, and um, I remember uh, I was the head of the poster committee in high school, but I, I mean, I could draw from uh, the time I could remember when I was in the fourth grade, I drew all the dwarfs. Uh, the seven dwarfs, about uh, you know eight inches high, and I did the fairly. And then I didn't. Um, I took really didn't take art lessons in high school. I took drafting, mm-hmm. and then in college I majored in architecture and minored in in in, uh, in drama. Uh, but then I went to art school uh, later uh, after about a year of college. I went to Chouinard's Art Institute. Uh, I could draw, but then, you know, you, you really got detailing. You had really fine artists teaching you different techniques in painting and stuff like that. You so, know, you uh, you look through your, your new book, which is called Designing Jaws. You can get it on. I got mine on Amazon. You guys really should get this. But, you know, when you've made all these storyboards to the movie, I got to thinking Joe could have been a comic book artist. I mean, you could have easily worked for Marvel or DC if you would have went that Wanted to go that way. It, that, that, yeah, that, that's another way of going. Uh, my daughter uh, does that online. She works on a comic thing, and uh, yeah, the, the storyboards. It's interesting. Um, now, let me just explain this. Uh, in the movie business, when you start out, it, it used to be this way. When under the studio system, now it's all very loose. People just say. I'm a production designer, and that's it. Before, you had to start either as a set designer, which was basically architectural drafting, or illustration, where you would draw the the sets in perspective. Uh, I always thought I was adequate 
And I'll remember when I went to, you know, it was 20th Century Fox. And I had a portfolio that uh, I had put together because I worked at a little theater called Hollywood Playhouse. And I designed the sets. I did illustrations and I did the plans you know, for construction. And so when I was looking for my first job and the, the guy said, are you an illustrator or are you a set designer? <laughs> Uh, the, the head of the uh, the art department, and uh, I said, "Well, I'm I'm not quite sure." He says, "Well, let me uh, let me show you something." So he takes me back, and he shows me this huge six seven feet illustration of Cleopatra coming into to Rome, and John DeCure was the illustrator production, and he was like one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And the guy said to me, "That's a typical illustration." And I said, well, if that's a typical illustration, then I guess I'm a set designer, not an <laughs> illustrator. <laughs> but as a teenager, you go to work at Walt Disney World. How do you pull that off? What happened, I went to Disney Studios. Uh, I graduated high school just a month after I turned 17. So I was pretty, pretty young. And I went to San Jose State, say major, because I knew... To be a set designer or art director, I needed to know architecture. And then I was interested in theater. So majored in architecture, minor in, uh, in drama. Uh, and then after about a year, I said, I better go to L.A. and go to an art school down there that specializes in production design, uh, which I did. So then I did that for a year. Uh, the summer came, and... Uh, I didn't really want to move back to Northern California because I was in Southern California. And uh, a friend of mine said, oh, my my wife's father works at Disney. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he could get something for you. So I thought, well, maybe I can get a job, a summer job sweeping up or something. <laughs> so I called this guy up, Andy Ingman, and it so happened he was the guy that did the hiring for the artists, if you could believe that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, oh, you, you know my daughter? I says, oh, yeah, uh, went to college. With... Oh, he said, well, bring in your portfolio. So I says, okay. So I brought in my portfolio. I didn't think I was ready. And he said, um, well, you're, uh, you're too late for the training program because what they do is they train you for, oh, I don't know, 40 days or so, and then you, you become uh, in-betweener. And then that a year or so, and then a breakdown hours. And then after many, many years, you become an assistant animator. Anyway, he says, but I could put you into special effects. And this is where it really gets crazy because I'm now, I'm put in a room. I didn't know anything about animation. And this woman, Marion, she was sitting down at a table with a light. And I said, what do I do? She said, you flip the pages and draw between the lines. I said, oh, I could do that. <laughs> so I I, I I was doing that. We were working on something. And then she started working for Dwight Carlyle, who was an older uh, assistant uh, animator, but he worked for Josh Metter. And Josh was the king of, of special effects animation. He did uh, Night on Bald Mountain. He did uh, The Fire in Bambi. He, he was just great. And he was working on a picture uh for uh, MGM, uh, Forbidden Planet, and he was drawing the id. Right. And uh, the id had to be animated on cinemascope papers, 
and it couldn't be inked and painted because they didn't want that kind of hard line. They, everything had to be sketched and rendered, each frame. Wow. So anyway, she just started working with Dwight, and then after a couple of weeks, she says, I have to leave. Something important happened. I have to leave. So I immediately started working for Dwight. Uh, so I sort of skipped all that other thing. I was now assisting the assistant. I was a breakdown artist. I've been there for maybe uh, two months, a month and a half. <laughs> you moved up quick. Yeah. Well, then what happens is uh, after about another few weeks, Dwight has to go to the hospital. And so now I'm assisting Josh Metter. I go, it takes nearly five years to do that. I'm doing it in less than three months. And I'm drawing the id for... Uh, Forbidden Planet. Uh, for Forbidden Planet, you know, and it has to be rendered, and it's, it's on cinemascope paper because it's, it's wider. Anyway, that that's how that started. And then uh, from that, when that was over, I moved uh, over to Sleeping Beauty. And I'm drawing uh, different things and Sleepy Beauty effects and stuff. And um, I'm drawing a cookie that one of the fairies are hope, uh, holding. And so this guy reaches over my shoulder and he corrects my drawing. He says, no, no, the cookie should look like this. It looks like <laughs> mouse ears. And ah. it's Walt Disney. Ah, because it's so, kind of slipped in there, I guess. Yeah, he used to walk around and check things, so he was very, uh, you know, on-hand kind of guy. i got to take a quick break, uh, Joe, and we'll be right back. We're talking with Joe Alves about all kind of Hollywood stuff here on Guatney Unplugged. You're listening to Guatney Unplugged on News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine. Brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group. Hey guys, having a great Saturday. We're talking with Joe Alves. He has a book. It's on Amazon called Designing Jaws. Of course, he worked right there with Steven Spielberg, made Jaws happen. And we're just talking about you were working on Sleeping Beauty, but I know at some point in time you were around Alfred Halvard Hitchcock. And okay, how well, did me, that come about? Yeah, here's what happened. Uh, so I, I left Disney's because I really wanted to work in animation. And and so to get a portfolio for that, I I worked at a little theater called the Hollywood Playhouse. And uh, I, I developed a portfolio illustration. And as I told you, the guy said, uh, what do you want to be, illustrator, set designer? I became a set designer. And so you go in the process of becoming a junior set designer and you're the last to be hired, first to be fired. Then it was all the studio system. Then, sure, you know there were departments, and uh, so if you were fortunate enough, you found a home in a department, and then you didn't get laid off when there was a, a slowdown. So I was very fortunate to 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 land at Universal and work as a senior uh, art director, uh, set designer. I worked on this Mad Mad World and all those things. And then eventually, I was promoted to an assistant art director. That was a big break for me. I was working with a really talented art director, Frank Arrigo, and we got this movie, uh, Torn Curtain. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was really interesting working with Hitchcock. Uh, he would, for then, we all wore sport coats and, and ties. That was a standard. He wore a black suit, black tie every day. And we would all meet at the coffee machine or, you know, on the set, 
production manager and the art directors, and Hitchcock would tell sort of unfunny jokes, and we would <laughs> laugh. Uh, but the uh, the great thing about Hitchcock is he had been uh, an art director in England, and he liked to plan everything. He loved the storyboards. So the thing is, we would build like half sets because, I mean, one time, I'll just briefly tell you this. He called me into his office uh, because the art director, production designer were, were on location. And uh, Peggy called me and said, Mr. Hitchcock wants to talk to you. And I says, okay. And so he explains to me. He said, uh, Mr. Newman, Paul Newman, runs down these stairs. You just build the stairs. Al Woodlock, who's the mat artist, is going to put a mat painting there there mm -hmm. uh, against the screen uh, front projection. And then he walks down the stairs. He walks over to the re registration desk, checks out, and leaves. And I says, okay, fine. I build the, the desk. I said, well, now, what about to the right here? What about this wall and that wall? He said, no, no, no. I, I don't need any reverse shots. I, that's all I need. Build me the stairs. The, the wall with the registration and leave. And that's the way we did sets for, for Hitchcock is he knew what he was going to shoot. A lot of directors don't know. They have you build everything and then you see very little of it because they don't do think about it until they get on the set. He saved them and a lot of money. Walking. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, and uh, another director that was that way and that was because of budget was John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. I could build half sets for John Carpenter because he he didn't have a lot of money. But on Escape from New York, that was a big movie to him because uh, he'd been making Halloween and stuff for like three hundred thousand. He had six million to do Escape from New York, and I'd come off a picture that was um, twenty eight million or or so Close Encounters. So we would. I had bigger visions, but I. I I couldn't build a big things. I would build a, a small but really detailed thing, you know. Mm -hmm. I once had uh, on, on uh, uh, the uh, Rod Sterling uh, thing that I did, uh, Night Gallery, I had uh, an old cameraman uh, who'd been done big movies, and he said, Joe, give me really two detailed walls instead of three or four cheap ones because he wanted to see texture and stuff sure. like that. So that, that was a way of, of thinking the quality, you know, uh, if you had to save money, don't give them the whole set. Give yeah. Them just give really, them a couple of walls and uh, make them look great. You know, exactly. Hey, I got to ask you, cause I am a huge fan. You worked with Elvis Presley on change of habit. What was that yeah. like being around him? Well, let me just tell you something. I also worked with Mick Jagger. By oh. contrast, Mick Jagger was a super nice guy, very friendly, inviting me to his house to watch Academy Awards. Presley would show up late with his entourage. Mary Tyler Moore was always upset because he never knew his lines. And uh, so he wasn't the most pleasant person to be around <laughs> because he, had, he, was, he was not friendly. He just has his entourage, uh, but he, he wasn't prepared either, you know? Right, right. Uh, so, um, yeah, really didn't get to know him. 
but it, with Mick Jagger uh, on uh, Free Jack, uh, that was really a. I remember that experience. movie. I'm a big Mick Jagger Stones fan. The, the Elvis and the Stones. It's funny you mentioned these two because to me, Elvis and the Stones. That's that's what I listen to all the time. It's it's funny that you've interacted with both of them. Yeah, it was sort of unusual, wasn't it? Yeah. But, you know, in in the film business, sometimes you get uh, acquainted with the with the actors. Sometimes uh, they're they just walk on the set and then they're gone, you know. Uh they don't mingle very much. Sure. I got to be really close friends with Paul Newman. Uh, on Torn Curtain because he liked uh, race cars. Oh, yeah. And uh, he uh, he told me, he said, I have uh, a Volkswagen Beetle with a Porsche engine. And he says, I understand you're a race driver, which I was. I mm -hmm. was racing the Formula Juniors, and then I changed to Formula 2. So uh, I said, well, we could go rent uh, Willow Springs Raceway. Uh, it's open the public to race so much $25 a day or something per car I said we'll go with my group of car owners and stuff and uh, spend the day so he looks at me in his big blue eyes and he says my god if Hitchcock knew I was doing this he would sue me for a million dollars and you'd probably never work in this business again you know so <laughs> yeah. it was a little scary anyway he took off in this race car much much faster than his Volkswagen and uh he was doing a few laps, did quite good, came in. I said, you know, that's fine. I said, now remember, turn nine is a decreasing radius. It's really, you know, you come in fast, but you, you, you've got to keep tight uh, or you're going to spin. Anyway, after a couple laps, turn nine, he spun and disappeared into a cloud of dust. And oh, we were in no. the pit there. And I went running after him thinking, oh, Jesus, I killed a superstar. And when we got there, the dust had settled. His eyes were really big and he freaked out. And uh, he had collapsed the whole front end of the car. Uh. Uh, the wheels were laying down. And he, you know, he said, oh, that was cool. You know, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> the damage wasn't that expensive. But anyway, he, he uh, then started to pursue racing, uh, sports car racing. That's right. And then I did it. I did a movie with him a couple of years later called Winning, and that was all about racing. And I was an assistant art director on that, too. And uh, so he, he, he raced cars. And let me say this. There's a book out called Paul Newman, and there's a, pictures of me with the, put him in the race car and all that. But there, he, the end of his career, he, uh, he put his age on the number of the cars, so every year it would change. Ah. So there's a picture of him with number 83 on the on the, his car. So he was 83. He, he qualified fastest, and he won the race and, at 83. And he raced all those years. Um, and I was uh, fortunate to be part of, well, you know, the beginning of it. Uh, he died, I think, the next year of cancer or something, but a super nice guy. He he didn't like to do a fan stuff. He he didn't like people coming up and interrupting him to get autographs when he was having dinner and stuff. Sure. But. 
You're listening to Guatney Unplugged on News Radio 102.9 KARN with Scott Romine. Brought to you by Guatney Automotive Group. Hey, Scott Romine. Joe Alves is here telling us how Martha's Vineyard became Amity Island, kind of by accident. It was sort of rough. I took the, the, the boat to uh, Nantucket and it was too rough. They turned around, came back, said, We, we, we can't make it today. And there was a boat to Martha's Vineyard. So that was sort of freaky. It, just by luck, uh, he had never been there. He didn't think there was anything there. And it was perfect. Little quaint town with picket fences. And and then there was Menemsha, which was the fishing village. Mm-hmm. And it was a great place. And there was an empty empty lot at the beginning of the place. that I could build a quid shack. And also there was a bay. I needed a bay because of the platform shark we needed 25 feet of depth so the shark could come up and, and we needed a very small tide we took pictures i talked to steven he came out he loved it and uh and that's how it happened that's... you know because uh, the boat didn't go to nantucket yeah that's right hey i want to ask you in real life i've never seen footage of this i've always wondered when the mechanical sharks come up and they worked and did their thing were they loud? Was there a sound yes. to these things? Uh, Scheider is there, and he said, you need a big... It comes out, and, and you would hear all the valves and, and rams and stuff, so it made this terrible sound, and then <laughs> Stephen would say, cut, and the whole crew would laugh at the shark. Ah. So, the premiere of Jaws, not the premiere, but the sneak preview that we're all invited to, the crew, uh, I was thinking, oh, my God, they're going to laugh at the shark. They're not going to be afraid of the shark. And so we went with all the executives, and they didn't laugh. They screamed. And the studio didn't think the movie was going to do anything. When they screamed and screamed, the executives, Lou Wasserman and Scheinberg, whatever, they went into the men's room. They said, we've got to replan the distribution of this. Because normally... (laughs) They would be just a few theaters for a few weeks, and you'd have to wait in line. So they, they're, they're going to release it in 450 theaters, which was huge. That was the biggest summer release ever at that time. Well, okay, so you take away the shark noise. Right. And you add yeah. you know, John Williams' two notes, and, and you got something that works. Did you know there is actually an Arkansas connection to Jaws? I bet you didn't know that. No, I, I didn't. It's it's kind. Of, well, it's a sad connection, but we lost Roy Scheider. He passed away here in Little Rock. And uh, when there, was that? Was he doing a movie there or what? No, he he was undergoing treatments uh, for this cancer that he had, and and UAMS, the hospital here in Little Rock, is one of the best in the world for that particular uh. cancer. And and there are I have friends that worked at the zoo. And they said he would come to the zoo in between treatments and look at the animals, and he would talk to people. But ultimately, we actually lost Roy in Little Rock, and I've I've always wondered what he was like. He was a little standoffish, mm-hmm. uh, n- not all that friendly. Uh, 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 Dreyfus is a little more friendly. Uh, Shaw, Shaw was he liked to drink. He'd go out at night, <laughs> and he used to drink with one of the boat guys from Martha's Vineyard, and it, actually he got his accent from him, because he's English, and he, he got that that sort of New England... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Know, so, so he, he took that from Lynn Price, Lynn, yeah, 
Lynn Murphy, who was uh, we hired as our, our boat guy t- to pull the sharks. Uh, then we did Jaws 2 with Schneider, and he was very unhappy with that. He did not want to do the two, the, the sequel. I've always he heard had a contract. it. Why did he not want it? He did he think it took away from the first one to do a sequel, or or what was his reasoning? No, I think it was a personal thing. He he just wanted to his career not to be with sequels. He wanted to just do big movies, you know, and not do a a second. And and we had a lot of problems because he would wear these tiny little bathing suit, and he would go sit in the sun, and get really dark, and the cameraman came to uh, us and said, uh, we got to keep him out of the sun because he's getting so dark, the contrast, we could see the difference. Yeah. And we, we had Verna Fields, who was uh, the editor the editor on Jaws, and she won the Academy Award for that, and she was now a vice president, and she came and tried to talk to him about it. But he was really, uh, he, he was not a happy man on that movie. So I can't really say I got to know him very much, but I would say that he was very unhappy on two. And he was a little sort of standoffish. I got you. Uh, Dreyfus was a little more friendly. I got to know uh, Rick a little bit more. And then, of course, I did close encounters with him. I I love to. I've always wondered, did you guys, was it your idea to burn the shark early in the film so that it has a different look? On two. On two. Yeah. Yeah. well, it's in the script. There was a couple of things in the script that was sort of difficult. On that picture, I was a associate producer. I directed 85 days of second unit mm-hmm. because they fired the first director, and I brought in uh, another director, and we had to, to catch up. So I directed a lot of the action, uh, and then uh, I was also the designer. Uh, there was a couple of things that the, the burning I don't know. It was in the script, so we did it. Uh, we brought Carl Gottlieb in to redo the script. Uh, they fired the first director after a couple of weeks because he just didn't move very quickly. Right. Um, and then there was uh, the shark eats the helicopter or bites the helicopter. Oh. That was uh, a sequence I directed, and and that was very very difficult. <laughs> you know. But that is get- a great scene, and and there, there's an extended cut of that. Right. You had to take some things out of it. Well, let me tell you what happened. Uh, it was so difficult. First of all, to go shoot in the water, you go out there. Oh, and, and, and let me just clarify this. When I was doing Close Encounters, uh, there was this girl that I was dating. She had two greyhound dogs. And we'd go to Pensacola, and we would run on the beach there, Navarre Beach. And I said, my God, if, if we ever do a Jaws 2, this is a place to do the ocean. Because what happened on Jaws... That beautiful bay, when I scouted it, it was in the winter. Nobody was there. In the summer, there was just tons of boats coming from Hyannisport. Ah. And Steve and Stephen didn't want to see any other boat. He one of those guys totally isolated. So that was very difficult, waiting for those boats to move out of our camera range, you know. Uh, so we moved on two. We moved all the water stuff to... Uh, Pensacola, Navarre Beach area, uh, and in Florida. And we just did some run-bys in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. But um, the, uh, what was the question again? Well, we were, we were talking about, you know, you burn the shark and... and uh, oh, yeah, burn the shark. Oh, okay. And then the helicopter. Let and me the helicopter. Say this. 
All right. So, so to do a, a shot on the ocean, let's say you've got a seven for eight call, eight o'clock, everybody leaves. Now you've got to, you have to, like with the boat, you have to anchor it, four anchors, so it doesn't move around. Sure. So we had the helicopter to, to anchor, we had the camera boat, the effects boat, uh, and then the the boat for from the director and stuff. So it takes forever. So by the time you <clears throat> you get it all ready to shoot, it's probably 11 o'clock. <laughs> and so the first day, uh, they get the shark working, and something goes off, and it goes and it, it ends up on the camera boat, and we have to cut. We come back the next day. Okay, all right. The helicopter has fiberglass blades, not real. It's just you know. Hold uh, that. Hold that thought. We got a helicopter. But what I was impressed by, because I thought it was such a silly thing in a helicopter. But when I I rode around scouting. Uh, close to uh, Sugarland Express in a little Bell helicopter. They're very small, and they had these pontoons. And I said, well, the pontoons would look like seals, so a shark could go after it. Anyway, so then the second day, I said, all right, everything's great. Start the helicopter. They start the little blades going, and somehow it didn't work. They flipped over. They broke. That was day <laughs> two. Day three now. Day three, finally, we got the helicopter working. We got the shark, and it grabs the pontoons and pulls it down, and it was fantastic. But it took three days to get that one shot. Yeah, and and I, I know that there was some, I don't know, it was too scary or too violent that you cut some shots of the, the shark going after the pilot underwater or something? You know, what happened was the pilot wasn't very good with the water, and so when he went under, he was flopping around, and we had to get the rescue people, uh, special, uh, you know, uh, effects guys to, to get air to him, uh, the stunt guys, you know. So we couldn't have a stunt guy there. We needed the pilot so, because we see him closely. Sure. But he wasn't too good. So there was some uh, ugly. We cut those out, you know. What, was that in a tank when we see the shark no. attack? That was out in the open ocean? Oh, yeah. Hey, Scott Romine, we're talking with Joe Alves, a production designer and uh, artist and all this kind of stuff that he does. On Jaws 2 or even Jaws 1, you guys are in the ocean all day long. Did a real shark ever show up on the set while you're making these movies? Not really, but there was uh, on Jaws 2 in Florida, there was sightings uh, of sharks uh, Some. 20 miles away. And so we had to post guards around it. And we never had any bad experiences with that. Hey, um, later on, you would go on to direct like the third one. Whose idea was it to, to turn SeaWorld into the set? And how hard was it? Because when you go to that SeaWorld today, you really can't find anything as it was, I guess, in the early 80s. Not at all. What what happened was uh, Jaws two did quite well, and I had directed uh, so much. As I said, they replaced the director. I brought in the director, Janot Schwark from Night Gallery, and I said we can't get a big name director. We got to get a guy who could just take over right now, and uh, and so I had to do a lot of directing to to catch up. Um, on Jaws 3, 
Zanuck and Brown were done with Jaws. They, they sold the rights to it, and the studio wasn't too, too happy, even though they made a lot of money. But they weren't doing many sequels then. There, uh, you know, there was just a, a couple sequels, so that was not a popular thing to no, do. No, not not uh, now. So, yeah, it's expected yeah. now. You know. Oh yeah, exactly. But they did. You know, first of all, when we did the second one, people were so surprised, but it did extremely well. Uh, so a few years later, Alan Landsberg, who was a television producer, did uh, That's Incredible. And he was very, very cheap. Very, you know, just get it done. Anyway, I was working on a movie called The Ninja. Urs uh, Kirster was a director, about six or seven months. And it, it canceled. And I came back to L.A. and I went to Verna Field's office. And she's now a vice president after winning the Academy Award as an editor, really nice lady. And she said, you know, they're going to do a Jaws 3. They were going to do a Jaws 3, People Zero, which was making fun of their most popular movie. It was just disgusting yeah. to make fun of. And that's what they were going to do. But then I think Spielberg heard about it and stuff. They decided not to. And they sold the rights to Landsberg. And I met with Landsberg. She said, go talk to him. Maybe, you know, you could direct it. Anyway, I talked to him and uh, and he said, oh, I'll let you produce it. I said, well, I really want to direct it. He said, well, I'll tell you, go, uh, go scout some locations with the writer. And so it was a theme park. It was uh, an ocean theme park. And the brothers were older now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, and I, I was scouting in Florida. And we saw these different sea parks. And... Uh, but there was a, an exhibit of underwater in 3D. Mm-hmm. And so I went and we looked at that. And it was just beautiful. The depth, you got got three dimensions with the, with the glasses. And um, so I came out and the, the writer said, uh, but Jaws uh, in 3D? I said, no, Jaws 3D. You take the onus off the third by putting the D after it. Yes. Jaws 3, Jaws 3D? 3D. It's genius. And so... That that got oh, the studio excited, and I went I went home those Thanksgiving, and I I drew a picture of a shark coming at us with a three D three D coming at. So that got me the opportunity to direct it, uh, Scott. What I didn't realize is that all the three D stuff was old. We had to build a camera in England. They brought uh, a new uh, IMAX, uh, not IMAX, but uh, anyway, it's a small camera. 3D, it converges. It was difficult. It was extremely difficult. Was Landsberg was just giving me, oh, you got to shoot this, you got to, you know, and it was cheap. Oh, he didn't want to build a shark. He said, oh, I have a lot of stock photos of sharks. Oh, good grief. Uh, I said, or, and I said, no, 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 we need a shark. In fact, we've got to make a bigger one because we put Simon the Corkendale in the shark. Anyway, we got Carl Gottlieb to, to help again. That was the third time. And uh, so it, it was a struggle. Uh, uh, I think it, it came out okay. The problem I had is Landsberg, um, he had final cut. I didn't. And ah. if you don't have final cut as a director, they, he cut 25 minutes out of my cut. I, I made it the same length of one and two. And he cut it so that they could have five screenings instead of four screenings a day. Uh, and uh, do you have so a copy got, of the, the the longer version? 
Well, I do, but it's in 35 millimeter, and, ah. uh, you know, it's just... Uh, but, but anyway, and the, and the critics said, oh, I expedited the film too quickly. But you have no choice. It still did quite well. It would have done even better. It made over $50 million. <laughs> But Universal had another film coming out in 3D, and so they wanted to, to pull that one short, you know, yeah. uh, screening. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that was that was quite an experience. Hey, Joe, how do you go in and convince, you know, I would think that initially SeaWorld, the theme park, would be hesitant to let somebody come in and make a movie about this shark killing people. How did you get over that hurdle? That was interesting. Uh, how we got people to negotiate uh, with SeaWorld, and I think they felt that because Jaws is so popular that it would bring audiences to SeaWorld, you know? And they're probably Even right. Though, yeah, probably. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's kind and, of an advertisement. Yeah, and, and, and we were going to make it all very positive. All the characters that worked at SeaWorld were, were very positive, and they did their best. And then, of course, the shark shows up, and they have to deal <laughs> with that, you know? And that, that was really difficult. The, it was interesting, uh, Leah Thompson... The producer didn't want Leah, and uh, I thought she was great. And we were casting in L.A., and then we went to New York, and here Leah shows up again. Oh, I'm in New York. I thought you wanted to see me again. And I said, I like that girl. Okay, you're the director. You like her. So cast Leah, um, and um, she went on to do a lot of big things, you know, after that. Oh, yeah. It was was a good crew. John Putch was, was... uh, Marie Stapleton's uh, son, and uh, it was good. Uh, D- Dennis, uh, Dennis w- was fine. Uh, Lou Gossip was incredible. Lou Gossip, uh, he would, boy, he he knew his lines. He, he never faltered. He was really a pro. W- with Dennis, I'd have to, he'd have to do one or two takes to get into it. Lou was ready immediately. You know, yeah. the actors are different. Some actors need to warm up to it. Others could just, you know, okay, action, boom, and they're there. You know one of the cool things about that you did on three? If you go through your book, it's called Designing Jaws. You can get it uh, right now, Joe Owls, and get it on Amazon. But early in the concepts for the first Jaws, you, you storyboarded a scene where the camera is looking out of a shark's mouth with the teeth. I think coming towards yes. Hooper, and you didn't do it, but you eventually did it in Jaws three. I know because I showed that to Stephen, and he laughed. Really, it's he great. Said, what, what are you doing? You got uh, the camera in the shark. I said, "Well, it's sort of the, yeah, the shark." And so um, that was I a said, great okay, idea. Well, we, well, eventually, I did use it in in the third. It's funny that you mentioned that because. Yeah, that that was, I remember doing that sketch, and and Stephen thought it was funny, but no, we weren't going to do that. Uh, and then we didn't have the opportunity on two, but uh, it worked out three, and I had to build a bigger shark, a thirty-five. We put half of a thirty-five shark to put Simon in there, you know. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I think it worked well. Uh, it it just they did cut. A lot of the personal relationships I had with the actors, you know, uh, when they cut 25 minutes. I've always heard that one of the hardest things that you had to do was kind of political. 
And that is to build Quint's shack for the first Jaws. That's not an existing building that you just went and rented. I had to go to, to Boston and show inspectors there. And then I came back and they said, well, it's, it's too high. I said, well, but it's not really a building. It's just a set. It's an illusion. It's going to be gone. And it, they went into about a foot and a half into the ocean. I got another inspector coming. Oh, you're in the ocean. That's going to need another kind of permit. You've got wow. to go to Boston to get that permit. I said, well, wait a minute. That's going to take, you know, if I don't do what's going to happen, well, they'll, they'll make you turn this down in six months or so. I said, okay, fine. Go ahead, guys. Put it in. <laughs> so it, it, it never stopped. And one of the guys that really complained uh, was uh, Len Murphy. And what are you building this thing for? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, you're a boat guy, right? I said, yeah. He says, yeah. I said, we need a boat guy to pull our shark. Yeah? So he ended up becoming part of the crew, he and his uh, future wife. And that's the guy that Shaw went to have drinks with and ah. uh, used his voice. And so it turned out good for him. He, he made a lot of money. Sure. And, uh, and then we did, we did tear the thing down. But uh, he, he and his wife, his wife is still alive. He died a couple of years ago. But they really didn't want the building. They, they just, they didn't need the tourists, you know. Yeah. Hey, most people wouldn't believe that there are some shots in Jaws that you like did in your garage and front yard and stuff in California, right? Yeah, what happened was there was a screening in Texas. In Dallas. And, I guess uh, that's the first screening, right? In Dallas, Texas? Very first screening. And uh, just a few people went, the director and the producers and stuff. And uh, Stephen came back and called me and says, Joe, we got four screams. I think we could get five. But there's two shots I'd like to get. And I need a little section of the hull of the boat. So I have a, a shop. I do a lot of woodwork, build my tables and things. I said, okay, so uh, we built, and Kevin Pike was a local uh, on uh, Martha's Vineyard. I hired him. He became an effects guy. And he, he worked on a lot of movies after that. And then, uh, anyway, so uh, Kevin and I built two hulls. The one hull we shot in uh, the driveway, and it was when, they're singing, show me the way to go home. Oh, yeah. And the shark goes, boom, boom, boom. So we had a little hull, and we had a hose, and uh, we we had the the water coming through the water, the boards. So like like the boat, the shark was invading the, the boat, the orca, and that's eventually how it's going to sink, you know, partly that. And him crashing on. So anyway, that was one. Then the other one, he said, you know, when Dreyfus goes down and he drops uh, something, and it, it's uh, the the old the fisherman. Uh, we if we could get the hole with a hole in it, so they go and they get the the, the fisherman's head from. They just steal it from the wardrobe department. <laughs> ben Gardner, he, I think. Ben Gardner. Yep. Uh, he gets that. I, I, I make the hull, the boat. We get an underwater cameraman, and we go to Vernafield's swimming pool, <laughs> and we mucky up the water. And Kevin gets underneath, and he's got the head, and he's shoving it. Well, let me tell you, uh, when we showed that scene 
people flipped out. They screamed. Anyway, uh, so we have dailies, Jaws dailies, and everybody freaks out. They're, no. Janet Cabral said, we're finished with the movie. There's no Jaws. Well, Stephen paid for all that, and I, I did it for nothing, and a lot of us did it for nothing. You know, we were part of that team. And uh, and so they saw it, and they flipped out, and they cut it in the movie, and that was a, that was his fifth scream. Huge. and Yeah, huge. Since then, have you ever went on vacation, like you purposely go to Martha's Vineyard just to say, hey, we did this here, and just to reminisce about the whole thing? Uh, I have been there for their 30th anniversary. That was the early part of uh, this century. And it was interesting because there's a lot of Jaws people. Uh, it, you know, it, uh, Greg Nicotero, who does Walking Dead, he directs those, and he's a big, big Jaws fan. And, in fact, he, he wrote the introduction to the book. Joel, That's right. He did. Jaws. And so I gave him copies of all my illustrations and stuff. But somebody, uh, was Jim Biller, who was a uh, great guy, he said, why don't you sell these? Uh, sell copies of this, you know, blah, blah, blah. He says, I'll, I'll handle it. So that was Jim. So then I started selling copies of the storyboards, about uh, uh, six or seven different and the illustrations, and um, I would uh, sign them and send it to Jim, and then, so that that was interesting, Scott, is that it's, I forgot about Jaws. After three, I was through with Jaws. I sure. was through with Sharks. I really didn't care uh, anymore. I, I saw a little bit of the fourth one, but that didn't do too well. I think it just ran its course. Anyway, uh, but... Through the years, I've had more fan mail and podcasts. Oh, especially since the pandemic, people have nothing to do, and so they they send me. Could you sign? Now I used to do shows. I used to do the the, the shows. I did uh, a, a number of Lexington and one in New Jersey and whatever. And Carl Gottlieb would would be there, and. Uh, and other people from other movies, you know, sometimes Dreyfus, and we would sell sell the I'd sell my storyboards, sure. and photographs, and stuff like that. So, so it's it's interesting. I forgot about Jaws for years, and then in this century, it's become popular. I mean, I'm doing podcasts quite a bit, and then I met uh, Dennis Prince. Uh, uh, in uh, Louisville, I think, uh, where he was advertising uh, something that he, he was involved with. But he was a writer from Hewlett Packard, written a lot of technical things. Anyway, he was interested in writing a book. And um, so uh, we wrote a small one of Close Encounters. And then on uh, Jaws, uh, Catalina Island uh, had in their museum a Jaws exhibit for six months. So we wrote the first edition of the book, uh, Designing Jaws, and uh, then uh, the publisher uh, bought it and, and expanded it, and we, we expanded it with a hardcover. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and now he's working on a biography uh, about all the things that I've done. So That's fantastic. That'll take a while. Well, it's, well it, it's interesting because it's a different time. It's, uh, that's basically not so much me, but how the studio system worked, how you got, you know, working with people like Hitchcock and Spielberg and stuff. So it was, 
you got to be proud, though, that, you know, here it is 40-something years later, and there's been a ton of shark movies made since, but none of them have ever come close to what you did in, in Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, I think what's happened, certainly with today's shark, they're all CGI. And right. They're very, very good. But they never use them, and they put too many. And, and I think the idea on Jaws was to be more selective. You know, we're not going to show the shark that much. And when we do, it's going to have, you know, it's either going to come by the boat slowly, and you're going to say, wow, that thing is big, you know. Uh, and uh, But the it, characters. In, in the back of the book, you'll see Greg Nicotero uh, built, the studio came to me, uh, the, no, the, the museum, Motion Picture Museum came to me a couple of years ago and said they had built this, they called a junkyard shark, a, a fiberglass shark uh, with the original mold. And, and what happened was the studio, when we came back over schedule, over budget, they had they just didn't like the movie at all. They put the shark in the back lot and let it rot. They sold the boat. They had to buy it back. Yeah. Then, then the movie came out, and they needed something in the tours to illustrate, uh, to show uh, Jaws. So they had this big thing, shark, fiberglass. And so in recently, uh, they came to me and said, can we you know, fix up that old fiberglass shark so we could put it in a museum? So... I contacted Greg, and his company does incredible work. And um, anyway, so that is now in the museum, which will open next year. That's uh, awesome. So it, it doesn't go away. It's no, there, you know. it's never going away. Thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Well, it was fun. It's just oh, a lot of fun. Just great to talk to you and uh, Jaws, the film that will never, ever go away. Uh, Scott Romine yeah, for Guat, it's never going away. Never. <laughs> we, we'll see you guys next Saturday here on 1029 KARN.